Welcome to episode 113 of the Swamp Flex podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. I'm Brittany Lombos. And I am James Cohn. And we are recording in three separate locations in New Orleans, Louisiana. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flex. The pandemic edition. Ooh. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Can we even call this a pandemic anymore? We're in like month four. I think this is just like normal life now. No, don't say that. Well, it's like that, that first wave never really receded. So we're just kind of riding that wave. I know, like, forever. well, the cases are going up again. I'm like, oh, is this a second wave everyone's been saying is going to happen? And it's like, no, we didn't finish the first one yet. Mm. <laughs> oh, damn it. I don't know. I sure do miss going to the movie theater. Yeah. I miss going outside period i mean i miss seeing y'all's faces and smelling you yeah, yeah. giving you hugs i don't know i just smell like deodorant i don't know it's weird <laughs> i did not put deodorant on today and i smell very bad you know when you put deodorant on while you're sweating and you smell bad it's like that weird mix that makes it even worse well especially like i use old spice which already is kind of musky yeah and then when you add that into your natural body odor it's it's a strange smell no one will tell me what I smell like at this point, so it's, it's really anyone's guess. <laughs> Your smells still haunt my dreams. <laughs> I've improved back. them over time. They used to be quite acidic. <laughs> acidic? Shit. Yeah, it kind of burned your nose. Stings the nostrils. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That is impressive. <laughs> Just like how gross can a person smell? Like if any time to like try and see if you could do that, you could do it now. That was my only claim to punk cred, you know? I had to like get the smell right because I had nothing else exactly correct. That house <laughs> on Jackson, it's like yeah, we're all competing for who could be the stinkiest. <laughs> I won. I think, it. yeah, your odor stands out. <laughs> Whoa. Well, as we're cramped in our smelly, stenchy houses, <laughs> what have y'all been watching lately? I assume pretty similar stuff as the last time we talked, but I still want to hear about it. Well, I watched Palm Springs the other I day. Me too. That's what I was going to talk about too. I liked it. Good. Me too. At me first too. I was like, this isn't Groundhog's Day. Like, why are they just doing the same thing? But then the more I watched it, I was like, oh, they're doing something kind of fresh with it. And it feels like a really good movie for the uh, pandemic mm. that we're living through, the lockdown, you know, kind of stuck in the same routine, the monotony mm-hmm. of doing the same thing over and over. No, and I, I thought it was sweet and I thought it was clever in that it it pretty much knows that we've already seen Groundhog's Day. So it's not going to try to retread the setup that Andy Samberg character has already been in it for a long time, which I thought was was cool, like just jumping right in. Jumping like way downstream, like after he's already lost his mind. Right. You know, like we don't have to go through the process. Like we don't know how long it's been. So like, it's so funny because like everyone's so bored right now that like there's all these like forums and lists where they're like, how long has he actually been in the time loop? <laughs> there's no way to tell. You can just make up whatever you want. <laughs> yeah, people are trying to make these like scientific like formulas and stuff and be like, this is actually how long he's been there. And I'm like- Wow, it's just it's crazy and I love that people are doing that. <laughs> I don't love that. I hate when people treat movies like they're a puzzle that you have to solve and I there's like an answer to it. Fun. That is the one thing with this movie like towards the end where they try to do that where they try to give some reason for the whole thing and like you know, could have done without that. It would just kind of take it at face value that they're stuck in a time loop. I don't need yeah. an actual explanation. But again, I really liked it cuz I felt like it it did add something new to the genre, mm-hmm. you know, which we've seen these movies before, like, 
what was that show? Russian Doll and Edge of Tomorrow, Triangle. Happy Death Day. Yeah, there's a lot of time loop movies in recent years. Yeah, and this one's like more of a straightforward rom-com, so it's kind of like back to the beginning, like back to the original Groundhog Day version. Yeah, I think that's why I liked it, was like the rom-com element, and they played my favorite Kate Bush song of all time, Cloud Busting, mm. which I was so surprised. Like, it was just so unexpected. It kind of threw me, like, back. Like, it was crazy. And it was at, like, a very pivotal point in the story, too. Like, I thought that was a great choice. Mm-hmm. We ended up watching a bunch of Kate Bush music videos after the movie was Aww. over. Well, and after that's like, like midnight. the songs about like, you know, this, this, the mad scientist or inventor and his son. And it kind of went in really well with like how she was, you know, doing her own scientific experiment. I think I like that. Yeah. That was really cool. Good choice. And also like uh, J.K. Simmons. Yeah. yeah. Like I love that side character too. And his whole story. It was very funny. Yeah, no, it, it was good. I, I enjoyed it. And then I also watched uh, Stargate. You know, the Kurt Russell, James Spader <laughs> sci-fi movie from the 90s. Have you seen this? Yeah, not since the 90s. Is Stargate, like, so is this movie, like, have anything to do with, like, the sci-fi series? It's a prequel, right? Okay. Like, it came out before the TV show. Yeah, my grandparents were obsessed with Stargate, so. Ugh. Well, the, it, like, it's such a great premise, and I could see why there were like multiple TV series after the fact. But this movie is like really, really bad. And I started watching oh, it's very it bad. thinking like, oh, this is like a classic 90s sci-fi movie that I haven't seen. Let me check it out. And then it was just like so abysmally bad. And then like after the fact, reading that it was the director of Independence Day, which totally made sense. I mean... Is that Roland Emmerich? Yeah. It's like this really cool sci-fi premise... And instead of like doing anything with it, it's just an excuse to, you know, have shit blown up and there's a ticking bomb at the end and like stupid one-liners. No, it was just, it was horrible. And it's like haunted me ever since like the fact that a really bad movie spawned apparently like some great TV it's baffling to me how that happens. I think there's like movies with like very specific premises that people remember the premise, but not the actual movie. Like people reference like single white female or like flatliners. Mm. The premise is there. It's just the actual material is like kind of boring. Well, especially with something like Stargate where it's like literally a portal to other planets and galaxies you know, outside of ours and all this stuff, which is perfect for a TV series where like Star Trek, you can explore each one. But in in this movie, they did like so little with it and it just became a generic, you know, shoot 'em up action movie. I was incredibly disappointed. So anyway, what, what about you, Brittany? There's one that I watched that I just want to talk about because of this one tiny like part of it that I thought was so funny. On 2B TV, there's like every Lifetime movie from the late 80s and mid 90s is there. And it's just a treasure trove that I always like dabble in like before I go to bed. Like I put on one of those like old Lifetime movies about like someone getting their kid taken away. (laughs) And then I sleep like a baby. I watch this movie. It's called, well, it has two different titles. Beauty's Revenge is one of the titles for this movie, but um, I watched it under the title Midwest Obsession. <laughs> and it's uh, from 1995, and it stars 
Courtney Thorne Smith and Tracy Gold. So Tracy Gold was probably in more Lifetime movies than anyone else. Probably her and Tiffany Amber Thiessen are tied. <laughs> so in this movie, there is a beauty queen. She's like from this small town in like the Midwest. And it's a beauty queen based on like dairy. So they call her the town's dairy queen. <laughs> and I don't know. She falls in love with this like guy in town who is already like in a relationship with Tracy Gold and Tracy Gold is like you know the meek like cardigan wearing teacher and then there's the milk beauty queen or whatever and she will stop at nothing to get the man away from Tracy Gold because she wants him even if it involves murder and it's super cheesy. So it's it's one of those stupid plots where it's like he eventually like is in a relationship with the dairy beauty queen. And <laughs> then he realizes that he's actually in love with like Tracy Gold's character. And then shit gets crazy. And I hate those types of movies, but I hate to love them where it's like women stealing men away from women. And it's the woman's fault and not like the guy's fault for leaving. It's just stupid but the part of this movie i love the most is that the evil dairy beauty queen drives a hot pink convertible with cow print interior kind of like a mary Kay car <laughs> like a mary Kay car that is like amped up like all hell and she's going to like murder people while she's driving in it <laughs> so it's kind of like when you see this like <laughs> this cow car the sexy cow car when you see it pull up you know shit's gonna happen so i think that's so funny some of those details sound like a like drop dead gorgeous type comedy and not like a uh, actual lifetime drama. It was a great drama. <laughs> it's good. So it's not anything to like seek out, but if you just so happen to like see it somewhere, I think it's a fun watch. So yeah, I watched that and then I also uh another movie I watched I want to talk about is a movie called Look Away that came out in 2018. It's like a horror film. I think it's a Canadian horror film starring Mira Servino. And it's about this girl who like she's in high school. She's not super popular. And she just looks like she is like emaciated. Like she has like these huge like under eye circles. She smokes cigarettes and like doesn't eat. And her dad's a plastic surgeon who's like obsessed with body image and her mother doesn't quite understand her daughter. And it's like, honey, do you want to go to prom? I'll buy you a dress. And she's like, no, I don't want to go to prom. Like that kind of mother daughter relationship. Well, she starts talking to herself in the mirror, the daughter and the mirror talks back to her. So she's like talking to this, you're trying to figure out like, is she going crazy? Is this a ghost that's like trying to like get into her head? And eventually the being that's on the other side of the mirror inhabits her body and gives her this confidence, which then becomes deadly. And she starts like, you know, killing people who kind of get in her way, but it takes the movie a really, really long time to get to that point. You have to kind of like hold out for it a little bit. What's it called again? It's called Look Away. Interesting. It reminds me a lot of this uh, movie from 1990 called Mirror Mirror. It's a pretty similar premise. Mirror Mirror. Is that like when there's a goth girl and they move into that house and there's a haunted mirror? Yeah. I remember that movie. Holy shit. The girl who stars in it, her name is Rainbow Harvest, which is a very uh, (laughs) lovable name. I love that. (laughs) It's so goth. But the point in this one is like, 
it becomes like you're trying to figure out like what is this other thing and i'm gonna give the ending away because i don't know like it's fun to watch but it's not worth watching but the ending basically you find out that she was a twin and her twin came out deformed and her like image obsessed like plastic surgeon father like basically was like yeah we don't want that thing kill it and that was who she was talking to was her uh deformed twin it's kind of like that basket case situation yeah Yeah. it was it was good it wasn't fabulous though but yeah i watched it enjoyed it it sounds like you're having a very trashy summer is what i'm hearing (laughs) it's been really trashy (laughs) don't even get me started on the valerie bertinelli movies i've been watching on tubi (laughs) Those are even worse. <laughs> That's to be continued. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so what have you been watching, Brandon? Have you been watching things that are a little more in the classy side of film? I would say yes. They're like classier <laughs> takes on like the horror genre. Okay. One I would liken to Palm Springs and that it's a very appropriate quarantine movie, although not as sweet. I watched this movie called Vivarium that just got on Amazon Prime. Oh, with Jesse Eisenberg? I've seen that yeah. one. Yeah. We're like, they're stuck in like a suburban hell, basically, where all the houses look the same. Yeah, it's like this young couple moves into this like cookie cutter suburban neighborhood and they get trapped there and they're isolated. There's no other couples in the neighborhood, but they get these like daily supply deliveries from like an Amazon type delivery service for like their food and necessities. And they also get delivered a baby and are told to raise it uh, while they're in this <laughs> captivity. And it ends up being this like really fucked up comedy about how much married people hate each other mm. and hate their own children. And it felt like a very quarantine appropriate movie. Cause it was like the child in it is like a thousand times more annoying than the kid in the Babadook. Like he's just shrill shrieking inhuman monster and they just like despise his guts and eventually despise each other. And it ends up being this like really dark take on like monogamous romance over, over time. And I thought it was very funny. Uh, a lot of people hate it. It's definitely like annoying on purpose, but I, I was really amused by it. In some ways it sort of reminded me of, we need to talk about Kevin, which is like, you're stuck with this horrible child that just demands all your attention. You know what I mean? And just like, is a piece of shit and you wish you were you know rid of him i dug it honestly i'm glad you liked it i did yeah i don't i don't know what the uh, negative reviews were really about i guess but no I, I liked it i watched that the other day actually did you find it funny yeah i was thinking that if this came out in theaters it would be one of those instances where i would be the only person in the theater laughing and i'd feel like an asshole but I, I just thought like the kid is so hateable that it's like kind of ridiculous in a purposeful way. Yeah, I think like if we saw this in the theater, you would laugh out loud. I'd probably be <laughs> chuckling to myself and then somebody <laughs> sitting next to us would be like, you know, tell you to cut it out. Cut it out like it'd be shushing, shushing you. <laughs> Much deserved, honestly. Like I'm glad this went to VOD, uh, even though I missed going to the movies just because I didn't get to annoy strangers. Um, (laughs) It's probably for the best. And I also watched this movie on Criterion Channel that's also a new release called Zombie Child. Oh, I saw that. I think James would like this in particular. I have not heard of that. It's from Bertrand Bonello. His last film was Nocturama, which I made you watch for the podcast. Yeah, which I, I liked. And he's got kind of like this cold Haneke style of like political provocation in both movies. But in this picture, he's like taking on the zombie film. 
and how he does it is like really interesting. Like he splits the movie into two narratives in the sixties. You have this like Haitian storyline where this guy is raised from the dead to work on sugarcane plantations. He's like enslaved as a zombie Hmm. And it takes like a really like academic look at like how zombie lore started and like how in like voodoo practices, how it's like traditionally supposed to be. So half of the movie is this like guy just sort of like in this brain fog working these sugar cane plantations and like kind of remembering fractures of his life before he was converted. And he like kind of tries to gain his humanity back over the course of the movie. And then the other half is set in modern times in this school in Paris that is for like teenage girls who are like legacy kids. Like their parents were all awarded like some like medal of honor in France at the school um, that was, you know, founded by Napoleon. So it has this kind of colonialist bent to it. And through that lens, like the school has like all these lectures about colonialism in France and kind of the failures of the French revolution, like the promises it has and like how those weren't carried out. And that starts to communicate with, you know, the Haiti storyline as you're watching it. And it all kind of comes to this crescendo with this like voodoo ritual at the end that brings them together. So it's weird. Like the modern stuff both feels like a Michael Haneke, like political provocation. It's a little cold and like academic, but it also has this like coming of age storyline. I almost want to compare it to like Celine Sciamma's films, like mm-hmm. girlhood and stuff like that. Um, Cause there's a lot of like racial tension between this like Haitian girl who is in this French school with like mostly white kids and, you know, they talk about Rihanna and they talk about zombie movies and like pop culture stuff in a way that felt very like fresh and just consciously picking apart how we think about zombies in movies. And, you know, it's mixed with this like sort of traditional zombie movie lore that's been kind of missing from the genre ever since, you know, George Romero reshaped it. Mm. And it's just like really smart engaging movie it's one of the best things i've seen all year oh dude i'm, I'm definitely gonna have to check that out you ticked all my boxes right there <laughs> i thought about you the whole time i was watching it so i'd like to hear your opinion on it so that's on criterion channel which is about as hoity-toity as we can get here i think <laughs> while still talking about horror films the rest of the episode we're going to talk about one horror film it is not classy uh, ah. it's not on the criterion channel <laughs> But uh, hopefully we'll have a lot to dig into and it'll let us sort of dig into just in a general way our thoughts on the Nightmare on Elm Street series, which is like one of the iconic like cornerstones of horror, I would say. And all that's coming up to you right right now. Now I have a story that I'd like to tell about this guy you all know. So kind of like when we did the Matrix sequels recently, I think some groundwork should be laid here. We are going to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge in particular this episode, but there are so many Elm Street movies and it's such a like iconic franchise within horror fandom. And I know all three of us like share kind of a love of horror in general that I kind of just want to know as like a baseline what your experience with like Nightmare on Elm Street is and like what movies stand out to you as like your favorites. And then also like, how did you think about the second one 
before we dug further into its context? Because we watched a couple of documentaries on it today as well. I mean, to start off, like my earliest memories watching any movies, my first movie I remember watching was Child's Play. And my second movie I remember watching was Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, which is not even like near the best one in the franchise. But as someone that kind of was you know, raised on horror films, Nightmare on Elm Street was sort of the standard when I was a kid. Like that was the genre. As like I've grown up and I've, you know, I've seen them all probably at least two times. I think Nightmare on Elm Street is probably one of the most imaginative franchises in horror. Yeah, you get that dream logic. Yeah. Uh, surrealism kind of opens it up to all kinds of ideas. And it, it stands out in that way from like Friday the 13th or even a Halloween where those boogeymen tend to be like very silent, menacing. And I always was drawn to Freddy Krueger for his like humor, which, you know, really doesn't come up until actually the second movie, which we'll talk about is really the first hint that he has like this sense of humor and he kind of becomes this larger than life character. But yeah, that's one thing that always drew me to the franchise was it seemed to take risks in ways that other franchises didn't. I feel like as a whole, it holds up pretty well. Like to me, I think the first one is probably the best. I mean, objectively, but then I really love Dream Warriors and I really, really love Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Those are probably the three top ones for me. And those are the three that Wes Craven worked on himself. Right. But I I do think like going into this, I had always sort of skipped over The second movie, in the same way I think a lot of fans of Halloween skipped over the third movie in that franchise, where it felt like it wasn't actually part of the canon. You know, it was sort of dismissed as like, no, that's not really... That's my favorite Halloween movie, by the way. (laughs) Me too. Well, in the same way that this one that we're going to talk about, like, is unique. It doesn't quite fit with the rest of them, but that is what makes it special. But I think that is sort of its legacy is like, oh, it's sort of this weak sequel that, yeah, it made a lot of money, but it doesn't really fit in. We're not really going to talk about it. But as a whole, like, I think the second movie adds a lot to the franchise. And, you know, we'll go more into that as Hmm. we delve into the movie. But as a whole, to summarize, like, I think Nightmare on Elm Street is a pretty strong franchise when you compare them to, like I said, Halloween and Friday the 13th and Chucky movies that... It's one of my favorites. Wow. Yeah, I mean, when it came to like horror, I was more into the Friday the 13th series. But like, honestly, like these Nightmare on Elm Street movies, I haven't watched them since I was like eight. Um, So it's been a really, really long time. Like I watched them when I was like way younger. Like me and my cousin would have like tons of movie nights and we would, you know, rent the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. And... I don't know. I just never like after that period of like maybe about like a year or so, I just never like revisited them, you know? So I kind of like have like loose images of all the different ones blended together. So I just see it as one giant movie. I remember the one I liked and you might know this, James, since you seem to be like uh, a bit of a Nightmare on Elm Street expert. But <laughs> I don't know about that. But yeah, we I don't know why, but we were so me and my cousin were so obsessed with the scene where like one of the girls is like having a nightmare 
um, with Freddy Krueger in it, and she starts like burning her wrist on the stove to wake up from it, or he's burning her wrist or something. But we, yeah, I I think that's in the first one. Okay, that maybe that's it. But yeah, I don't know why we thought it was so funny, and we would like reenact it at our sleepovers. And, like, I remember that very vividly. And then I remember, like, the school bus scene from the yeah. second one. But everything else is just kind of, like, loose. It's it's weird. And I would like to kind of revisit each one. I remember, Brandon, that there was a time, this was years ago, where we actually watched all of them, not as, like, a marathon, like, one after the other. But I think we watched the entire series in a couple of days yeah, I was living with you at the time, and that's actually my most vivid memory of watching these movies. Like, growing up, you know, you kind of catch this stuff out of order in, like, weird contexts. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a really strong affection for Nightmare 6, mm. because it just happened to be the first one I ever saw on television, and it's really goofy. It's got, like, a Tom Arnold joke in it, and it's got, like, a video game, like, NES-type And also... Humor. The theatrical version ended in like 3D. Right. The last wow. 10 minutes were in 3D, apparently, which obviously I didn't see it in theaters, but that was like cutting edge technology at the time. Yeah. And it's like a, just that kind of really goofy, over the top gimmickry just speaks to me in general. And that actually might have been a sort of formative movie for me just in that same way. But beyond catching like random clips and a movie here or there, I really didn't watch the entire series until you and I sort of streamlined all of them in one go. And for me, the same three that stuck out for you worked for me as well. Like the first one, Dream Warriors and New Nightmare were like the unholy trinity. Yeah. Like all those are really impeccable. And I think New Nightmare was actually my favorite of the trio. Maybe just because we watched all of them in a row and it's a movie about those films and like the power they have. Well, on a related note, I've been reading a lot of like postmodern literature like i just read john barth lost in the fun house you know like these meta narratives like a story about writing a story and new nightmare feels like in that that wheelhouse of like it's a movie about making a movie so there's like this very clever meta context to it which i really appreciate i think it's like incredibly smart and i think it's exactly what he did in scream as well. But better, IMO. Yeah, but better. But, you know, he's saying these are the rules of horror movies. And then they play into that or break the rules or whatever. So New Nightmare felt like extremely fresh. I think what New Nightmare does that is so fresh is like it's about what horror is and about like what it means to like the psychology of the people who watch it. So in that way, it's like almost more like the cabin in the woods than it is like scream. Cause scream is more about like calling out horror tropes and like patterns mm-hmm. and things. And like, you know, scream meant a lot to me as a kid in the nineties, like cause it really changed what horror was for a, at least a decade. But new nightmare, I feel like digs way deeper into like the psychology of what the genre does to people in a way that I think is really effective and honestly like registers to me as I'm thinking back on it. It's like probably one of my favorite movies. Hmm. Yeah. Oh wow. Period. And then to talk about dream warriors briefly is like, I think what happened with the Freddy Krueger character was, you know, he started out as very scary and menacing. And then it starts in that second movie we're going to talk about where it's like this little glimmer of humor and self-awareness 
And then I feel like Dream Warriors is the perfect middle ground where he's still scary, but he's also cracking jokes. But it's not like a full-on caricature in the way that the fourth and fifth movie are. It goes a little too far. He's not calling people bitch as like a punchline yet. And, you know, that stuff is like fun. It's like the same thing with Child's Play. You know, the first movie is genuinely pretty terrifying. But yeah, then you get Chucky like cracking jokes. Mm-hmm. And it sort of loses the scary quality. Uh, I feel like Nightmare on Elm Street has the same trajectory. And the movie we're going to talk about today, to its credit, sort of saw the writing on the wall like this is a character that can be a pop culture phenomenon and that we can build a whole franchise around. And in order to do that, he can't just be scary. He has to like have charisma. Again, I feel like that's what Dream Warriors is a perfect synthesis of those two ideas. I do have to say, like when we marathoned those movies, when we were living together, the second one, Freddy's Revenge, did not register with me at all. It was just because we were watching so many of them and it's so disconnected from the rest of the franchise in a way that like I had no real memory of it. And even just over the years hearing about how homoerotic it is, which I think is like the main crux of like why we're revisiting it right now. That didn't that register did to not, me either. Yeah. I mean, and it's really obvious when you watch it in retrospect, but at the time, like it was just such fluff and such like, okay, I'm getting through this to get to the good stuff that I didn't really like think about what the movie was even doing. And I mean, I think it's worth saying this is before, like we were blogging and podcasting about movies in general. So I probably wasn't thinking about it in any kind of like analytic lens, you know, like I was probably just waiting for the kills and seeing how many beers I could down uh, <laughs> in the uh, 10 film set. But yeah, it was just like not a good way to watch this movie. I think talking about an isolation maybe is the best way to like really deal with what it accomplishes. And we'll talk about this some more, but the fact that the filmmakers themselves claim that they didn't know there were these like homoerotic undertones, like I tend not to believe them. But again, thinking about my own experience watching the film, I didn't really pick up on those either when I was younger. So I don't know, like yeah. maybe there's a certain bit of naivete going on there and i think like when you're a kid like you don't pick up on that kind of stuff as easily you know what i'm saying like i think like if you had watched this movie for the first time as like your age right now you know what i mean well i mean me and brandon were like in our 20s really okay (laughs) pretty sad like we were in our 20s and you know we still didn't really i don't know i didn't really pick up on any of that fuck you doing in my room i need you to let me stay here tonight are you out of your mind something is trying to get inside my body and you want to sleep with me i think freddy's revenge from 1985 this is the sequel to nightmare on elm street the first one i think that it is better in isolation i think if you consider it separate from the rest of the series it just works better to the point where i think you could replace Freddy Krueger with another monster and it would just be its own thing. Mm-hmm. Like it, it really doesn't need to be part of the nightmare series, but gotta say rewatching it still not my favorite movie in the franchise. Like it's still kind of low on my list, but I did appreciate it more 
as we were revisiting it because there was a new documentary this year called Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street, which follows the fallout of the film suffered by Mark Patton. He was the actor who played the main character in the film. Uh, He bills himself as the first male scream queen of the genre because he was, you know, this like vulnerable male archetype who's haunted by Freddy Krueger the way that Nancy was in the first film. And what scream queen really carves out is that the writer of the film, David Chaskin wrote this like homoerotic and also homophobic subtext into the movie and sort of like outed Mark Patton against his wishes. This movie was released at the heights of the AIDS crisis in the United States. And Mark Patton had to deal with the fallout of the fact that he was in like the gay horror movie. And it like really made him feel unwelcome in Hollywood and he ended up like sort of running away to Mexico to start a new life. And he wasn't really pulled out of it until in 2010, there was this like four hour long documentary called Never Sleep Again that is about the entire Nightmare on Elm Street series. So for this episode, we watched the chunk of Never Sleep Again that's about uh, Nightmare 2, which I think is about 20 minutes long. And then we watched Scream Queen, which is the new doc, which I don't think is a very good movie, but it does like offer a lot of context and backstory to Nightmare 2. And then we also watched Freddy's Revenge like by itself without rewatching the rest of the Nightmare movies. And just as like a quick summary, basically it is just a series of gore gags and like setups for like big horror set pieces that have nothing to do with each other. Like this kid moves into the house across the street from where Nancy was in the first film and feels Freddy coming to him in his dreams. Basically, Freddy wants to take over his body and use him as an actor in the real world. Like Freddy wants to come out of dreamscapes and like actually like cause real world violence. Uh, It takes over this kid's body and eventually like emerges out of his chest at the end of the film and like runs wild in the uh, tangible meat space that we all live in, uh, which caused a lot of like uproar in the horror nerdom about whether or not that should be allowed. But underneath that, like on the surface narrative, there's also this like subtext where the monster that's trying to come out of this character is basically his like repressed homosexuality he's trying to be straight and trying to fall in love with the girl next door but this monster keeps trying to emerge out of him so on on one level it's this like homoerotic movie and this like harrowing story about what it feels like to suppress your sexuality and be in the closet but on the other hand it's also this like homophobic subtext where like homosexuality is this like grotesque monster and honestly a pedophile character that Freddy Krueger is, you know, in all the movies. Mm -hmm. And I think the writer had like very bad intentions when writing this character and especially considering what AIDS was doing to people. And I think that's covered extensively in Scream Queen. But at the same time in Scream Queen, you'll see that a lot of people just saw any representation of like gay identity on the screen is like something to identify with and like hold on to. And it's become kind of a cult classic over the years, even if its initial response when people started picking up on the gay undertones was like, huh, that's gay. Lol. It's bad. It's kind of been more embraced by the actual queer horror community over the years. Right. So we just talked about how we thought about nightmare on Elm street in general and where two fits in that. I want to know 
how the experience of like watching this in isolation without the other films and then watching it with the two documentaries, how that changed for y'all. If this experience like really highlighted or altered how you think about Freddy's Revenge. I guess I went in kind of knowing why like we were watching it, you know, so I think it made me think of it probably differently since I hadn't seen this movie, at least since I was like way younger. So I didn't really remember it. But yeah, like I found it interesting to how like it didn't feel like a Nightmare on Elm Street movie. I didn't really care about Freddy Krueger. It was like a possession movie to me. He could have been any kind of monster or demon, really. And he's not in the movie a lot. He just kind of comes and goes after like long stretches. So it's like it's not like I don't like seeing Freddy Krueger. I'm like, oh, cool. Like he's here. Great. But it's <laughs> it doesn't like add anything or take away anything. <laughs> I mean, the only thing that really makes this movie stand out is the homosexual subtext. Mm-hmm. If we're being honest, like Brandon said, the movie itself is really not that good. The only reason to watch it is like, oh, look, look at the gay, you know, kind of subtext going on. And I have mixed feelings about it, to be <laughs> I honest. I do want to say that I, I liked it. <laughs> I liked it too. Yeah. And I do want to push back on what James is saying a little bit, just because... It's not a very good movie in general just because what it is is a series of sort of disconnected set pieces and like gore gags. You know, it's just like setting up the next scenario where they can like pull out some like Mm -hmm. freakishly surreal horror effects, kind of like Screaming Mad George, like society style Mm -hmm. practical effects. The melting. But the practical effects are very good. I mean, that's what I'm going to say. Like, yeah, that scene where Freddie is bursting through his chest is phenomenal. Like, that's some of the best practical effects in the entire series. Yeah. And I think that's what saves it is that, like, if you're only going to do these sort of like tangential stunts like that, they have to be great. And the movie actually pulls them off, I think. And then the other thing you were saying was like, it's only interesting because of the gay subtext. And like rewatching it that with it in mind, it's so much. Like there's a lot to chew well, on. Well, it's there. not even subtext. It is text. Yes. Like when the gym teacher is getting his ass slapped by a towel after leaving <laughs> an S and M gay bar. I mean, that's not subtext. It's crazy. Like that to me. Like how people didn't realize that. Like when they were first watching it. Like he's literally a leather daddy at Don's place or Dan's place. And like, he's getting a rope, like he's getting a, what you call a jump rope. Like while Jesse's in the shower, (laughs) like after he's all like hot and sweaty and stuff from like being forced to run where the gym teacher is obviously getting hard from that. That whole thing was explosive. My impression that I got from the documentary was that, I think when it was first written, there was, like I said, a subtext of either homophobia or homoeroticism. And I think what happened was as they were filming, they realized like, oh, our lead actor is gay. Let's kind of ramp it up a little bit and make the subtext, the actual text of the film. Mm -hmm. And that to me feels very wrong to sort of out someone in that sort of fashion, especially when it was like kind of dangerous to be outed so i think the filmmakers definitely have some blame that should be laid upon them and there's like a lot of investigative like 
questions that we have to answer ourselves about mm-hmm. who knew what. Yeah. Because no one's like fully admitting what they knew at what time. The director in the Scream Queen movie, the new documentary. Well, he just feigns ignorance pretty much. Yeah, he's like, I had no idea. But if you watch the 2010 documentary, he says like, oh, I wanted to play a joke on the producer who wanted to be in the movie. So I made him dress up as a gay man in this gay bar. So like those two stories conflict right. with each other. Yeah, he's like basically in the Scream Queen documentary. He's like, yeah, we didn't even know that place was a gay bar. <laughs> Bullshit. We just filled it with tons of gay people <laughs> when we made the movie. It's so weird. Same thing with I think the screenwriter is probably the most to blame because obviously he was like rewriting the script as they were filming. Yeah. Like, what do you think? think the core of it was like obviously this guy wants to make money you know what i mean at the end of the day he wants to make money so like is he writing the film to be a gay film because he wants to target or to like make some kind of statement or like you know make money from this being like a major gay film i don't know i honestly feel like from a screenwriting perspective like i think he was really trying to add some depth to the nightmare in elm street franchise like i think Mm -hmm. it's actually pretty smart to add that in there and again i feel like that is what makes it interesting from a writing standpoint is you know freddie he's part of your subconscious part of your dreams and it's like this freudian thing and if you're like a closeted teenager that's wrestling with your sexuality of course freddie would prey upon that yeah it's very smartly conceived yeah i just feel like when it came time to film it and they're like, oh, we have an actual gay actor mm-hmm. here. Let's ramp it up to 100 and have these like over-the-top ridiculous scenes. And that, to me, feels like manipulative and wrong. Right. I think that it might have been smart on a screenwriting level. Yeah. But what he's doing with that material is making an exploitation film. Mm-hmm. Totally. And like preying on this like 80s concept that you can be converted into gay. Like that because there is like so much out proud gay representation that like someone could be seduced into that lifestyle you know he's he's a straight writer writing this stuff and i think he sees like questioning your sexuality as this like horrific scenario where this monster is like coming out from inside of you and like him falling in love with the girl next door and having this like kind of chaste kiss with her at the end is his like salvation and saves him from this like monstrosity And I think it's worth noting, and I don't think either of these documentaries really touch on it because it's like really touchy, but one of the biggest lies about homosexuality is that it is like the same as pedophilia. And Freddy Krueger is a pedophilic monster. Like that is part of his lore. And I don't think you can really ignore that uh, when you're talking about this. It is part of his lore, but the later films pretty much from this one on ignore that aspect. I don't agree that it does. Like... The scene where he goes to his little sister's bedroom and is like contemplating killing her and like stroking her cheek while she's sleeping is playing mm. on that. I didn't read that as like pedophilic, really. Why but is I he in there? That. Uh, to be a creep? A pedophile? Mm. <laughs> no, Damn I mean, it. that's a good point. I, I didn't think about that, but you're right, Brandon. Like, I. What didn't I have really trouble with is like, <laughs> in the end, like, he is saved by. Um, the female, the true like protagonist, the one that stands up to Freddie, 
you know, and then they do end up in this, like, I guess, relationship. But do but, they? Because when the movie ends, it doesn't show them together. Like, they would actually have been in a romantic relationship after that. They're riding the bus together and kind of acting like... But the way I, I took that ending, though, was like, okay, it's like a closeted gay man that gets into a relationship with a woman mm-hmm. to save face... But at the end of the day, Freddie, you know, quote unquote, is like still lurking and mm-hmm. he's not safe. Like, it's like you can be in a relationship with a woman to cover up your homosexuality, but your actual urges are like still there. And that's what the end of the film represented to me is like, okay, yeah. he's on the school bus with his lady friend and it's all happy, but it's not happy. There's still that like thing on your back. You know what I mean? Yeah. I guess my like larger point is I don't think David Chaskin had like the best intentions in mind when he wrote this. And I think a lot of Scream Queen, I don't know that it's necessarily a great film. Just as a documentary, it's like way over long and a little exploitative in its own ways in certain points. I thought it was pretty sad, honestly. Like, it's very grim, too. Like yeah. him having to go to these Comic-Con things and having to interact with these fans for a role he played 30 years ago. Like, I don't yeah. know. That just like seems very depressing to me. That like but, ruined his whole career. Yes. <laughs> like be it yeah. in that place again. But one of the saddest things about it is that he's like haunted by the things that were said in the other documentary and never sleep again. David Chaskin said, you know, I wrote this to be subtext, but you know, Mark Patton was so gay that he made it text and kind of ruined the movie. That's messed up. No. Yeah. That's fucked up. And he like has been sitting with anger over that for the past decade and like confronts this man on camera over it and kind of gets the half apology he was looking for. But I don't know. David Chaskin comes across as a villain to me in these movies. Yeah. Like, first of all, his apology wasn't an apology. It was like, if I offended you, I'm sorry. Like when people do that shit where I'm like, that's not an apology. But this is what my initial thoughts were. Obviously, I think like the more we talk about it, my thoughts changed. A part of me thought, okay, this was written with these like gay undertones, gay character. And then because the film came out around this time, you know, like where you have like the AIDS crisis and like all this shit going on, like instead of owning what he did, it's almost like, oh, it's not cool anymore. So I'm going to blame it on someone who was gay for acting too gay in the role. Where if it wasn't like that, he if he would have had a more positive reaction, he probably would have owned it. And that's what Mark is also mad about is that now that all these like, you know, drag queens like Peaches Christ are like throwing these like Nightmare 2 parties to like celebrate the sort of queer text. Then David Chaskin is going to come out and be like, yeah, I wrote it like that. And like sort of like cash in on that. Where like, yeah, that time he's like, oh, I'm in in it to be homophobic. Ha ha ha. You know, gay suck. I don't think that this is one of the better Nightmare on Elm Street films, but I do think it's maybe the most interesting. I feel like the um, that gay subtext or text, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, like, does stand the test of time and makes it like an artifact in a way that some of the other Freddy movies aren't. In a weird way, like, this one stands out and will probably be talked about for decades Forever. to come. It, yeah, yeah, in a way that, Especially like... Especially now. Yeah, like, Dream Warriors, like... It's a better film, whatever, but this one has like more social importance and therefore, 
you know, I think it actually will stand the test of time, even though it's like a weaker film than some of the other ones. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I find that interesting. Like it's sort of the black sheep of the Nightmare franchise, but it's also the most interesting. I think I had a good time with it on the initial watch that I had because I was gu- I'm guilty of like what the Peaches Christ crowd is kind of doing with this film where Me too. I just like paid attention to that like middle chunk. Where I'm like, yeah, get possessed and be gay as fuck while you do it. You know what I mean? But I, the ending kind of ruins that. And I think that I didn't focus too much on that. And I think I did it purposely, even though I didn't realize it. Because it kind of ruins like what I wanted it to be. Yeah, the movie is fun when you're thinking like, oh, this is really gay. Yeah. But then when you like really dig into like what it's saying about homosexuality, that's when you sort of get into like icky exploitative territory. Yes. But I think that's kind of common to all the movies we like. Like we like exploitative genre films and you kind of just have to take the fact that they're a little icky on top of the fact that they address transgressive topics that we wish were you know, addressed in better movies and just aren't like these topics are very sensitive and can be fucked up. And only these exploitative films are the ones that like take the risk to actually tackle them head on. So like, they're going to fuck up, but where else are you going to see it? Like where else are you going to see a super gay eighties slasher that played in every theater across the country? There's not that many places. You have to Mm -hmm. wait till knife and heart came out in 2019. But what's so disappointing is like, he did not end up with, um, what was his friend's name? Grady. Right. I think that would have been the ultimate, like, if somehow they found a way to be together, because that's obviously who he's attracted to. But, you know, he ends up with whatever her name is that looks like Meryl Streep. <laughs> she looks just like Meryl Streep. Yeah, it's so She strange. looks more like Meryl Streep than Meryl Streep's, like, daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I thought you were going to say she looks more like Meryl Streep than Meryl Streep looks like Meryl Streep, <laughs> which I think is also true. <laughs> That's true. That's one thing they touched on that in that Never Sleep Again documentary was like, yeah, we cast her because she looked like Meryl Streep, which she totally does. So fair enough. I do want to say, like, I think Nightmare 2 is better than I give it credit for, even maybe both times I watched it, in just that it's a weird fucking movie, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe just under the circumstances that it was made, they weren't paying close attention to what they were doing in any like conscious way. But like, I didn't know when the dreams ended and the real world began. Like the parakeets going crazy and attacking people's faces or the coach getting spanked. Mm-hmm. The anaconda scene where he falls yeah, asleep in that. class. You're like, oh wait, no, he actually... Fell asleep in an anaconda, like wrapped himself around his head. and Yeah, it's such a weird movie that you never know if what's happening on screen is like actually happening or if it's mm-hmm. in a dream and you don't really get an answer until like minutes later. So it's kind of like discombobulating in a certain way. And then just also like the gore is solid. Like all of the effects in here are fucking weird. They have like a society kind of like melt gore. Can we gore. talk about the baby face dogs? Yes. They're <laughs> yeah, terrifying. <what? laughs> They're so terrifying. And they were making fun of those in the Never Sleep Again documentary. They said they were like kind of half-assed, but I thought they were like legitimately The the effects are so good in this movie. I think the only real disappointment is like that pool scene is so half-assed. And again, like as part of the Nightmare on Elm Street canon, the fact that he's like out in the real world, I know it's a possession film and he takes over his body and now he is like in the real world. But that felt... Just so bizarre to me, like he's just in this pool party, terrorizing these children. And he says, like, I, you know, 
You're my You're children. You're my children. Now. <laughs> yeah. That that whole thing was just like that climax was sort of bunk for me, but it feels like they were trying to change what Elm Street is. Like they were like, "Oh, we need to free Freddy from being a nightmare demon." To like make him a real world like Jason type where we can just sort of plug him into like cheaper to film scenarios. It really just has no correlation to like where he actually fits in the zeitgeist, you know. They're trying to make him more normal by like having him emerge from Jesse's body and become Mm -hmm. like his own separate thing. So from the pool scene, do you think that all the kids in the pool or the teens in the pool, they saw Freddy or they saw Jesse when all that was happening? They saw Freddy. Okay, cool. That was confusing the shit out of me. And I'm like, are they seeing him or is it? Yeah. Well, but Jesse was his vehicle to get into reality. You know, he kind of used him. Oh, but like when he comes out of Jesse, he's really out. I don't know. I thought that was some bullshit, dude. Like <laughs> it is bullshit. It's kind of bullshit to even like give it this much uh, credit to like piece of part. But you know what is like. funny though? Like, have y'all seen Freddy versus Jason? Not in a while. In a very well, like when it came out in theaters. <laughs> there is there is some continuity because in that film, Freddy does possess this like pothead character and takes over his body in the real world. So there is some continuity where it's like Freddy is able to do that if he wants to. Hmm. That is canon. Apparently Freddy can do that. But yeah, I call bullshit. (laughs) I think a lot of people called bullshit. And I think in particular horror fans are like very picky about, you know, rules like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think when you're watching a bunch of these in a row, that is when it's a problem. Like you're trying to like piece together this like Marvel cinematic universe, kind of like continuity. And I think this movie works better when you watch it by itself. If it doesn't owe anything to the other Freddy movies, then that shit doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. And it just really becomes about, you know, the homosexuality aspect and also the, you know, just gore itself and like the scares. And I think it works pretty well on that. You know, since we started talking about like, how we thought about this movie in the context of everything beforehand. I want to know what you think about nightmare two. Now, after you've watched all this like supplemental material, I want to know if you think that scream queen, my nightmare on Elm street is like a worthy enough documentary on its own, right? Like, is it a good movie by itself? And I kind of want to know if you're hooked enough on never sleep again to watch the entire four hour documentary or if that's still a ridiculous concept. So I actually no, did. No, I watched it. I watched, <laughs> you the watched whole, it. Shit. I did. Yeah. When you were like, yeah, just watch this like 20 minute thing. I started watching it and then I just kept watching from that point forward. I watched the whole thing. It's fascinating. I thought it was really well produced. I honestly think it's a better doc style mm-hmm. than scream queen. I think it's like actually really well edited and like researched. I don't know. I, I kind of was hooked on it as well. I kind of wanted to see it. It's great too, like seeing that the same people kept working on these films, the same producers, the producers became directors. Yeah. I saw Rachel Talay was like a producer on two, maybe on one as well. And then she was the one that later went on and directed six. Yeah. I was like, Oh, I didn't know she was like, you know, in the franchise for well, that. Great. She like started in the office you know, and eventually worked her way up to being a director of the film. Yeah, that's cool. Like just through hard work and also like seeing Wes Craven and he's very curmudgeon-y about his his vision or whatever. And he kind of critiques each film. And I I, I thought it was a really good 
documentary. How did it compare to Scream Queen for you? Just better. I mean, <laughs> I, I feel like Scream, no, I just feel like Scream Queen was man. I really sympathized with with him. You know what I mean? Like, but I feel like he was naive too to like not see what was happening around him and like to not pick up on these cues of. Uh, but I guess it's putting the blame on on the victim. The victim. I, yeah. No. I I kind of felt the same way. Like I caught myself like saying, "Well." You know, like, what could he have done? But, right, like, he's the victim in this. So, nothing's on him. It's some, You know what I mean? It's Yeah, I feel like it's, like, not a well-made movie, really. But it is, like, giving a platform for somebody who was bullied yeah. for so long to, like, really, you know, tell his side of the story. So, I thought it was kind of, like, worthwhile, even though it could have been done better and edited down a little bit. I did like the Scream Queen documentary, but, like, didn't he produce it, too? Right. Where it kind of, when things like that happen, especially with documentaries, like they are more prone to being (laughs) one-sided. Well, and that's how I felt with the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary. He seems very happy about his experience and all that. And then the Screen Queen thing, it's like, oh no, I was taken advantage of and all this. And it's like, well, which is it? I mean. Well, he didn't have the benefit of the edit on the first one. Like he. Right. That's true. Couldn't tell his side. And honestly, I think what hurts it more is not that it's too sympathetic to him. It's that he's so close to it that he doesn't, and even the directors he hired, don't know how to make a good movie out of it. Like, there's way too much in this film. We see him go to so many conventions, give so many similar podcast interviews. There's an editing problem in it where I think they could have shaved off at least 40 minutes to an hour. Mm Mm-hmm. And gotten the same point across. I kind of liked how they showed so much of that, though, because I think it made it sadder. Like, he just looks so tired the entire interview. Like, it's almost like he doesn't want to do it. So it kind of makes me feel like maybe he's making himself do this to, like, really show us what the horror movie fandom world looks like for those who aren't familiar with it. And something I want to point out that I love that Scream Queens did is that it really showed how like the macho side of horror fandom is like you have the, you know, the horror movie bros that go to these conventions, like the guys that were like, yeah, he gives you a hug and puts you in a chokehold, but of course it's a gentle one, you know, <laughs> cause he's gay. Ugh. Yeah. Like that thing. Like, yeah. Like there are people like that, that go to these things, even though they're supposed to be looking like I'm weird and I don't belong. Well, you still, you're still an asshole. And I think there's like a big difference between the attitude towards the gay subtext in the film in that movie versus 10 years ago when they did Never Sleep Again. Like, I think even in Never Sleep Again, there's kind of these like, haha, mm-hmm. kind of jokes about it. Yeah. It's not really blatant, but it's a little bit of a like laughing at his expense kind of humor. So I think it really does show like just how different we think about like queer horror nerds. Like they're out there. They just didn't have as much of a voice, you know, 10 years ago as they do now. I enjoyed it. I found it easy to watch. I don't know. I don't know if he did it on purpose to like make us like sympathize with him even more. Like just showing how like sad he is and like how it ruined his life and everything. But I mean, from things that I've read, like, I thought that he quit acting because he was for a whole, I mean, it was a sad reason that he quit because there was like some kind of television series that they wanted him to be cast in. And it was a gay character, but they wanted him to show the world that he was a straight man playing that gay character, uh. which I think that was his like breaking point. 
And I kind of wish she would have talked more about like his acting career in general, like a little more than just, I mean, I know the, the whole Scream Queen thing was about Nightmare on M Street 2, but I kind of think, I wish he would have talked more about his like other experiences, like post Yeah, the that. Robert Altman movie he was in and the Brian De Palma movie he was in. They look cool. I loved when um, he was talking about his experiences with Cher. Yeah. Um, <laughs> because like, I love her so much. And you know, when there's someone who you idolize as much as like Cher or like even a Madonna type, you know, you don't want to hear bad things about them. And I love that he said nothing but good things about her. <laughs> Well, you also got to brag about making out with David Bowie, which we all would if we could. I know. Oh, God. Uh, Lucky bastard. <laughs> but yeah, like before I watched this, I didn't know that much about Mark Patton. So I was like kind of doing some research pre the movie and the documentaries that we watched. And like I found out like there's this someone put a blog out there. So like Mark Patton and his husband owned, I don't know if they still own it anymore, but it was like a art gallery type shop that sold local art in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And there were local artists that were selling these like paper mache sculptures in their store and making commission off of it. And what they accused Mark Patton of doing is he was taking their sculptures, making 3D prints of them with a 3D printer and then covering them in paper and selling them. Oh, shit. And I was like, well, it's all he knows because it was done to him. <laughs> you know, like it's so like part of me like wonders, like just from reading that, like, so he's exploiting like, you know, local Mexican culture for a benefit, which kind of is what happened to him and him being so young when that happened. I mean, it just kind of made me feel like it really impacted his life so much because I don't know, like I feel you're still young. What was he like? What, 25 years old? Like that's still a pretty young age. So it's like you're still kind of becoming the person you're destined to become. And I think that it just it probably impacted him more from being so young. And a lot of the movie is about just how much the AIDS pandemic like fucked him up. Like, right, right. He had AIDS complications a lot if not most of his friends died, like he's been right. through a lot. I think that's why it comes across as like generally very grim. Right. Even though like this should be a fun topic, like this over the top gory horror film that he starred in like 30 years ago should have, should have been like fun to talk about, but it really is like, it's just sad. Yeah. Right. It's like, I'm glad you brought that up too. Like the fact that, you know, he had to deal with having AIDS and the AIDS crisis and having, you know, this horrible experience. And like, obviously his family life wasn't that good. Like he just had a lot of things to deal with and, and being like so fucking young and having to do that. I think that probably did impact him. And I mean, if he gets something out of it today, I, I mean, I hope he does, <laughs> you know, from this, some kind of closure or I hope he makes money off of it. Something. Did that movie make you think of Nightmare 2 in a different way? Did it make you appreciate it more? It sounds like you like it more than you thought you would. It's like I feel guilty for saying that I like it and appreciate it because it exploited him. But I think that it's important to know that and watch it and know that while you're watching it and really see how like horrible Hollywood was to homosexuals in the 80s i mean it's still horrible today but you know what i mean like it kind of puts that out there a little better and i don't know and i did like i loved his dance <laughs> a lot all night long the little 
gun popper crotch move that he does at the end of the documentary too. <laughs> that is like a legitimate high school thing. Like it reminded me of when I used to listen to the Go-Go's Beauty and the Beat. I used to dance around my bedroom a lot as a kid. <laughs> like, By yeah, a kid, I mean like teenager. <laughs> yeah. By teenager, I mean I did it last night. <laughs> uh, yeah, yesterday. <laughs> What about you, James? How has this changed your view of the movie just sort of in general? I think I like it just the same. Like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. One thing I will say is like the things that we love about it, how over the top kind of gay it is, are at the expense of the actor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's why I feel conflicted. It's like, oh, I love he was in the S&M bar and he was got his pants pulled down and that you know, this scene in the football field and they were in the shower. There's a board game called Probe in his closet. There's a sign on his door that says, no girls allowed, all this stuff. But that's at the expense of a real person. So I kind of feel conflicted. Did we, I don't think we talked about it, but that part where like Freddie is actually talking and having this like really sexy conversation with him and like, fingering his You've mouth. You've got the body. <laughs> I've got the brain. Well, yeah, apparently, I liked like, it a lot. The original take was like, he put his blade down his throat in a very, very sexual manner. And then they kind of were like, oh, no, that's too on the nose. You know what I mean? So they cut that out. But I feel like that scene was kind of genuine. It almost felt like improv more than like written out. Yeah, that's like Robert England getting really into the character and sort of like going off on his own tangent. Yes, and I love, I think that was one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And that was one thing watching that uh, Never Sleep Again documentary was like, Robert England is a serious actor. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like he takes this character very seriously. And so right. in that scene where he's putting the blade down his throat, he was thinking about like all the connotations that could bring about. So... I don't know. Robert England is like a serious actor in this like fucked up, demented horror character. I didn't watch the Never Sleep Again in Whole. I just watched the segment about this movie, but he, they were kind of talking like they just wanted him to be like a guy in a rubber mask to where like anybody can fill it in. And like, I think he had a lot to do with like the character that Freddie is because he kind of gave life to him and gave him like this personality and charisma. To where, like, only he can really ever play Freddy Krueger. Yeah, and they end up giving him more lines than yeah. they thought they would. Exactly. Uh, and, went on. and it seems like, I mean, I am not familiar with the other ones, but is this the movie that kind of, like, started that? Yeah, I think by Dream Warriors, like James was saying earlier, that's when they really, like, ramp yeah. up his personality. But this feels like a step in that direction, for sure. Okay. I mean, for me, just thinking back on it, like, I didn't think about Nightmare 2 at all. Like, I don't even feel like I have a pre- documentary opinion on that film like it really just did not register with me as anything so you know going back and like watching two docs that sort of cover its production history and its subtext and it's like sort of like real life effect on the actor who starred in it just made me consider it as its own thing separate from the franchise and i think that improves it i think it's like a good or at least like decent series of set pieces with like really effective and like surreal looking horror practical gore effects Mm -hmm. and then also you add in this like whole other layer of like 80s homophobia and also just like genuine you know resonating with queer audiences like coming of age like reckoning with your own closeted sexuality subtext like i think it 
is a lot to chew on. And I think these documentaries only improve it and watching it by itself only improves that. So that's the main difference for me. I, I didn't think about the movie at all. Now I have a lot to think about it. Yeah. Even though it's not all positive, it, it's mostly positive. And honestly, I'm a little jealous that James found a time to watch that entire uh, Never Sleep Again documentary. I kind of balked at it. I'm like, four hours, my God. But it really seems really well put together and like was hooking me in. And I feel like I could put in that time if I, if I cleared out an afternoon for it. Well, I just started with that, you know, with the second film, with the clip you gave me, and then I sort of kept watching. I was like, oh, yeah. I know all these films. And, you know, you get a little backstory and kind of the history of each film. It was really well done. Yeah, I would definitely recommend it if you're into the series at all. Well, that seems like a good place to wrap up. Mm-hmm. The only thing I really have to plug at the back half of this is just that we are trying to make this a weekly podcast again. I'm working on doing these like smaller episodes with Boomer in between our normal conversations. Last week, we talked about Death Spa, which is a really fun over-the-top 80s horror film with some problematic gay representation in it as well. And then uh, next week, we are talking about Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, which is commonly known as the one with the whales. So uh, (laughs) I think that's a good uh, indication of the kinds of movies that uh, Mark and I will cover in between our normal episodes. Nice. So check it out if you didn't already listen to last week's episode. And we'll be back in a couple weeks with all three of us one more time. We'll find something else to talk about. One more time. We're going to celebrate. We're going to (laughs) celebrate. Oh, yeah. All right. The pandemic. Bye, everybody. Bye.